Welcome back to the Rab Mountain People podcast with me, your host, Andy Cave. In this series, we celebrate 40 years of the brand Rab and chat with key people behind the scenes. Here is a flavour of what's coming up. This street that we wanted to walk up, there was a soldier there with a big gun. A paddy wagon turned up and we got piled into it. Nobody was saying, well, where are, where are they taking us? Everyone was terrified. In the 70s, in that decade of the 70s, we were going all over the world and we were pushing the boundaries of what you could do. And the gear wasn't right. Very committing. Oh, we, you know, the last two pitches were vertical powder snow. And then we had this half a day traverse of flutings. You put your ice axe into it and you could see like 3,000 foot down to the valley below. I am very excited about this episode. Today we head to Sheffield and roll out the red carpet, welcoming the man himself, Mr. Rab Carrington, the legendary climber who started making sleeping bags out of his attic in Sheffield back in 1981. He has had an extraordinary life, a true pioneer, a man who likes nothing better than solving problems on the mountain or making the clothing and sleeping bags to help those heading to the mountain. From hitchhiking to the Alps in a kilt to pioneering new routes all over South America with Al Rouse, Rab shares a truly remarkable life. He's passionate, he's clear thinking, he doesn't suffer fools. If you're gonna tie in a rope with somebody on a mountain, this is exactly the guy you're looking for. I still remember my own first Rab down jacket, a kinder smock, and I still own my first Rab down sleeping bag that he made for me in 1990. Our conversation is so rich and Rab has so much worth listening to, we've decided to make this two episodes. So grab a drink, sit back. We're heading over to Rab's house in Sheffield. Rab, yeah. great to see you. Not seen you for ages. It's been strange times, hasn't it? It's been very, very odd. Yes. It's been difficult to cope with, but we managed it. We yeah. missed our freedoms, which is probably the most important thing for us being able to go where we want to, so. All the things we take for granted. Yeah, there's always lots of things we take for granted, you know, access to crags and all things like that, and being able to travel around and not having it is, it kind of, it kind of affects your soul more than anything. Yeah, I don't think anybody thought it was gonna go on for so long as well. I certainly didn't. No, that's right. And we thought, I think that we thought at the very beginning when it was a complete shutdown that, oh yeah, we'll do this, we'll be strong, we'll cope with it for two months and then uh, the floodgates will open, we'll be all right. But unfortunately, it's gone on for another, what, two years now virtually. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's, let's escape COVID for a bit. I'd like, thank God I'd, for yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, so um, 40 years of RAB and we'll talk about that, the brand, which yeah. is... Yeah. I don't know if you ever thought that when you started it, you were thinking that far ahead. I can't imagine you were. Oh, uh, no, no. I don't think uh, anybody was thinking any f very far ahead. It was, you know, those days of the 70s and early 80s. It was a pretty attritional time. Yeah, well, let's yeah. go back even further. So you were brought up in Glasgow. Yes, that's right. Uh, you know, in spite of my accent, I, I wasn't born and bred in Glasgow. I was a Londoner, they tell me. I'm probably a Cockney. I was born in Islington. Um, but 
People don't believe me when I say that. But yeah, at three years old, my dad's job took him to Glasgow and the whole family moved up to Glasgow. And I suppose to some degree that was the making of me. Yeah. And what was the world like then growing up in the 60s, Glasgow, 50s, 60s? Grey, I think, is the best way I'll describe it. Everything was pretty grey or black. Um, you know, so th there wasn't very much, you know, to highlight the week or anything. Your know, money was scarce, um, even though my dad had a good job. But on top of that, I do recall the wonderful freedom we had as kids where you would just go out, meet up with all your mates off the street and just disappear for the whole day. And nobody had a clue where you were or what you were getting up to. And so we just roamed. We were quite close to the countryside. We were roaming the forests, the woods around us and um, just turning up when we got hungry. And I suppose, is that where you, you had your love of the wasn't really, you didn't think of it as the outdoors, it's just you were out in nature all day long. Um, yeah, I, I don't think it was just me, it was, you know, all of us were doing this because we didn't have all the things that would keep you indoors. You know, you were kept indoors by having to do homework or being a, a Sunday when you weren't allowed to go out um, to play and, you know, things like that. Um, no, I think the, the love of the outdoors came at a later stage um, when we used to go on holiday. Because we were in Glasgow, Glasgow, a great holiday place for us was the Isle of Arran. And we used to go there, the family, for the whole of the school holidays for six weeks. And we stayed on farms. We, you know, you know, Goat Fell was just round the corner, the beaches were there. And I think that is where I started my desire for climbing. Yeah. And I, re I remember, you know, whilst down there, I, I, I was very young at the time. Like, let's say I was 10, maybe. I, I, I haven't a clue what age I was. But I remember getting my parents to buy me this guidebook and it talked about this route on Holy Island which was um, it was a, a v-diff climb up this this mountain but the approach was to swim across from the mainland which was severe for moderate swimmers and it, you know the whole you know this wonderful your know, concept of swimming across and you know, and then going for a climb just really appealed to me. Brilliant. But when, when did you feel like you got into climbing more properly? Was that before university or was it at uni or uh, your first I, rock I, climb I, with a rope or anything? Or? Yes, well, that, that's... Um, when I was in Glasgow, we were lucky in that right at the end of our street was a big... was a, a scout group. The 113. And, um, you know, they were a fabulous, it, you know, kind of place for me to sit myself. You know, I could, you know, that was a centre of my life 
one of the centres of my life was the you know the scouts and I'd come through all the the cubs and the scouts and I just started going to into the next stage I must have been about 16 at the time and I remember this guy Stuart Hudson saying to me he says oh um, you, you, you're pretty good, you do a bit of walking. I said, yeah, yeah, I've done all those badges and things. And he said, oh, we're going up to Glencoe to, um, you know, just to, you know, to, to go climbing. He says, do you want to come? I thought, yeah, yeah, show me how do I do that kind of thing. Yeah. So anyway, we, we, we camped, must have been, we must have been down at the Coupal Bridge, just under the Bucolette Moor. So I, I said, you know, and there was Stuart Hudson and his mate, whose name I can't remember, I'm afraid, and myself. So the next day we, we set off, and, you know, kind of they had ropes and everything, and I'm going, oh, wow, what's this? And I said, do you know where we're going? He said, yes, we're going to do Naismith's route on the north buttress of the Buchlative Moor. I said, all right. I says, have you done it before? He said, oh, no, we failed on it before. So anyway, we, we went up and then got to the bottom of this climb. And it was just bits of rock kind of thing. And, um, you know, they tied in. You know, I hadn't a clue what was happening. Somebody belayed. And, oh, God, they, what a palaver. They struggled and struggled and slings on things and stood in them. And they were, it was, so anyway... You know, they came down or you have a, you know, somebody else, the other guy had a go and he failed as well. And they said, oh, do you want to go? I said, well, all right then. I said, well, I don't know what I'm doing. And so they tied me in, bowline round the waist. You know, right, okay, on you go. And um, I just did it. Right, I'm up. What do I do now? <laughs> and um, they said, well, you have to be lay. I said, well, how do you belay? So there was this kind of, you know, distance learning course went on. As they, they taught me how to, you know, put a big tie a knot in the rope, put it over a rock and, you know, and... Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. So we, we got up and, you know, anyway, they, we came up to that and um, I, I looked up the rest of the route. And I said, oh, is that the hard bit? And they said, oh, yeah. I said, well, I'm on time. I said, I'll see you. I'll see you at the top. So I set off and um, headed up. And it was a gorgeous day. And I remember sitting on the top thinking, this is pretty good. And then I thought, ooh, they're not here yet. Where are they? And I thought, this is, you know, I better go down and check. So I had to start descending. And eventually they did come, they came up. And I said, what kept you? He says, oh, we put the rope on for that hard bit down there. I said, what hard bit? It's not hard. So it must have been, that was the... You had know, a time. So, so that was the start of it. And then that must have been about, I don't know, May Bank holiday or something. And then in the summer they said, oh, we're going out to Zermatt. Do you want to go to Zermatt? and climb a mountain. So I said, hmm, yeah, yeah. So we hitchhiked out to, to Zermatt, 
Wearing kilts, it was a doddle. It was really easy. What? We only wore the kilts once we were out of Scotland. <laughs> and um, we hitchhiked across, we climbed Brighton, I think. Yeah. It was all, you know, crampons, yeah. XWD crampons. You ever tried them? No. Oh, they, they, they thought I better try them out before I went on this mountain. So we went to a glacier. You, you stood on 10 pointers. You stood on the points and they just went, straight down. Out. And so yeah. you had to kick them, kick them back in again. Oh, like, so you'd done, you'd done quite a bit before you went to university then? Well, yeah. I just, you know, yeah. that... Then that was that you know, that was the summer. Yeah. In the September, I went to university. And you went to university in, in Glasgow, Glasgow yeah. to study maths. Did you? Um, I did, don't think I actually studied any maths. I, mean, <laughs> I, I was operating in the maths faculty, and um, I did get into the climbing scene in the university, and basically, climbing took over your life. Climbing took over, yeah. It was a, it was a very clear mathematical graph. You know, I went in to maths as a star pupil and a, a beginner climber. And I came out a good climber and a crap mathematician. But the degree was a bonus almost. Well, it was, I, 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 I prolonged my university career um, for as long as I could, because at that time we were being paid for it. You would got £400 a year for, for studying. So that was good. So, you know, it was the, uni you know, the university career financed it. So I came out with an ordinary degree. So presumably quite a lot of climbing in Scotland, summer and winter, before you moved down to... Sheffield, would that be right? Yes, that's right. I'd, oh, yes, yeah, because I'd, I, I moved to Sheffield in 1970. So I probably had four years of climbing in Scotland first. And, you know, and they were probably, well, they, they matched, they matched up with the university. I probably had a bit more because I had four years, then I had five, six years. I had six years climbing in Scotland and basically I went up to Glencoe, met up with some great characters up in Glencoe. Um, you know, kind of John Hardy, Will Thompson, Big Ian Nicholson, you know, a whole team of people and, you know, kind of legends. And that was fantastic. And, um, you know, we did all, you know, all the hard climbs in Glencoe. We didn't travel, we couldn't travel very far because none of us had transport, it was all hitchhiking. And so most, you know, we, we did, we climbed on Ben Nevis, Paul Dew and Glencoe, but that was more or less the extent of our, our travels. So then I know that you, you spent quite a bit of time in the Alps in winter. What was the, what was the thinking behind that? And who were you with? Well, that would have been was it sort of seventy three, seventy four? Yes, yeah. yes. Now that you you you've jumped a huge chunk, but we can get to that. Yeah, yeah. Now we 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 had didn't just go straight into that. We did. We served an apprenticeship, you know, in the Alps in summer. So right. I'd been to the Dollies in sixty eight, 
I would have been to the Alps in 70 and 72 as well. I'd been to the Alps with, by that time I'd met up with Al Rose. So I, I was climbing with Al Rose in 72. Um, and then the, 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 win, the Alps in winter in 70, 70, end of 73, beginning of 74. That was plotted by Al Rose um, in, in the UK at the time with Brian Hall and John Whittle. I was an outsider because I was still in Argentina. I was in Buenos Aires. I hadn't come back from, um, from our abortive trip of 73 to Fitzroy. And, and so I was working with um, Hector Vietas in Buenos Aires, helping him make so that's, sleeping is that, bags. Is that the time when you, basically your kit didn't arrive? That's correct, yeah. We've, there's a whole book to be written. Well, I think the, the Burgess twins wrote some of it and there's some stories about it in Al Rose's book. But it was, you know, it, it, it was a disaster of a trip. But how long are you actually over there altogether? Well, we, we left we left the the UK in about no, November the eleventh, nineteen seventy two, nineteen seventy two, and um, we we went across. We met up with Danini in America. We were supposed to travel down in his bus all the way down to to Patagonia. He decided it wouldn't manage that so we had to travel overland so we flew from Miami to Barranquilla to God knows where we went trains and boats and planes job and eventually got to Buenos Aires and um, of course it, this was you know 1972 73 winter of discontent we went to pick up the gear from the docks in Buenos Aires and um, they said, well, well, the boat hasn't left Liverpool yet. So we were completely stymied. So we did a lot of drinking, a lot of messing around. Um, I was going to say interesting times there as well in Buenos Aires. Oh. Politically. Politically, it, 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 it was very, very scary. I don't think we quite appreciated the, um, the you were know, the... Evita Peron, the Juan Peron, the Peronistas um, situation. The, there was this was the period of all the disappeared, you know, where people were being picked up off the street. Didn't you get involved in some of that as well? Yeah, we were, we did. Well, we got also there was all sorts of things went on, but you know that that was that that was a quite scary. Hector Vietas and myself were. We got on this bus to go to um, Caba, which is Club Alpino, de, um, Al Andino de, de Buenos Aires. And, um, you know, we were about a block away from where we wanted to be when uh, the bus turned the wrong way. And we said, oh, can we get off here? So he let us off at this, this corner. So Hector and I were there walking and we suddenly realised there were soldiers everywhere. There was a lot of noise and 
all sorts going on. So we went to this street that we wanted to walk up. And we said, there was a soldier there with a big gun. And we said, oh, you know, can we get, you know, you know, can we get, you know, can we go through, walk through here? And he said, no, you can't get through here. Go that to the next street and you can get up that one. So we walked down that one and we started walking up it, up this street. And Hector said, just Rab, just keep walking. He said, your eyes are going to be tingling. We're, there's tear gas around here. There's a lot of gunfire going on. We've just got to not do anything scary. And so we walked up and at the next, at the end of the block, police, there, our, our military there, slammed us up against the wall, searched us, you know, made a stand, spread legs and all that, uh, whilst paddy wagons went screaming by, motorbikes with machine gunned personnel, you know, in the back of them and everything. And um, eventually we, a paddy wagon turned up and we got piled into it. And um, we got taken somewhere, we're all kind of locked into this, you know, these little cubicles in this paddy wagon. And everybody was saying, well, you know, where, are, you know, where are they taking us? And everybody, everyone was terrified. And we were throwing, you know, we eventually got to this somewhere and it was all chicane to get into this, you know, wherever it was, this lock-up place, <laughs> you know, searchlights in our eyes and everything. And, um, you know, 30 of us got thrown into, into prison overnight. Nobody could, no phone calls or anything. And from time to time, people would, they'd, they'd call, you know, so-and-so a name, because they'd taken all our names at this time. And um, we, everybody, as soon as somebody's name was taken, they would write their name and telephone number and piece of paper, give it to them, so that they could contact people outside. And we were in there for, 24 hours, maybe longer. Terrifying. Um, not knowing what it is, yeah, I'm a British subject. Um, can I go to the see, go to the embassy? Yes. Can I go now? No. And you're just there. And it, yeah, it, it was, it was, it was very, very scary. And eventually, because we were doing this work, for sleeping bags for the military, and this was the military that was holding us, there were names that Hector knew high enough up, and we eventually got freed. So that's where, it, yeah, I mean, we're talking about loss of freedom through COVID, but that's another level, isn't it? That's kind of, oh yeah. Uh, being locked up, I, I can't imagine what that's like. So sleeping bags, <laughs> is that where it, had you, had you done any kind of, had you been tinkering around with kit before that, well, or making anything? Well, as, as we know that you know, the, in the the seventies, in that decade of the seventies, you know, Al Rouse and myself were, you know, we were climbing dynamo. We were doing going on trips every year. I'd work six months, and then six months I'd take off to go climbing. And we were going all over the world. We were, you know, and we were, 
at with a group of people like um, you know, Joe Task, you know, all that team, you're kind of pushing the boundaries of what could do you could do. So basically, we were doing all this, and um, you know, so the gear wasn't right. Wasn't you, up to the job. The, it well, the, yes, there was nothing. You know, it, it you had to change everything. You're know, like the gloves always stopped just after your thumb, but the snow didn't. So you had to always sew a bit of an old sock onto the end of your Dachstein mitt to you know to keep the snow out. Um, you know that you know that the you know, when we went to the Alps in winter, which you did, you know we mentioned earlier. You know the boots that we had weren't warm enough, and so we were went to Snell's, the outdoor shop in in Chamonix, and we made what were the forerunners of the Yeti Gator, which was a neoprene zipped um, overboot for boot uh, for for mountain boots, which we glued and stapled onto the round of our leather boots. So you were basically, you know, you and Al and the other folk, you, you, you were solving uh, problems on the mountain, but you were also solving problems in the kit that's, to help you try and solve the problems that, on the mountain. That's right. Yeah, yeah because we, we needed to get everything as light as possible. You know, we, we weren't doing big expeditions with a an advanced base camp and another advanced base camp where you could just ferry loads up. We had to be, we, we started from the bottom and had to get to the top. You were climbing in Alpine style. In Alpine style, right from the beginning. And, um, and um, basically, you know, things like stoves. There was no stoves to, that kind of suited the purpose. And so we, had, we adapted two different stoves. The Blue A stove, which was the gas one, and um, there was another one, the bivy bomb, they used to call it, because it was a petrol one, but that had a tower on it. And so we incorporated the tower from the one stove and um, the bluey, and you made what, you know, what we called a tower cooker, which you could hang up. And you know, things like that were, you know, were essential for us to yeah. be able to perform on the hills. So the 70s were really a... Uh, an era of innovation, really. Oh, fantastic innovation. From you the know, beginning of the 70s to the end, yes, would have been big changes. There, there were huge changes because, um, you know, right across the outdoor field, that whole arena, you know, because you know, you know, we started off, waterproofs were just nylon shells with polyurethane thin coatings. In the 70s, we got William Gore producing Gore-Tex. We got um, Bob Lomax from Shirley Institute using, you know, developing hydrophobic PU, yeah, yeah. polyurethane. And, um, you know, and so, you know, you, so you had suddenly had what were allegedly the first, um, you know, breathable clothing. So that kind of overtook horrible nylon stuff or um, your ventile cotton clothing. So it had a real authenticity about it. There was a real need, mm -hmm. and and you know, and, and then sort of the technology's helping you, and then you're yeah. going out on the hill, and I guess you 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 know you're proper testing it, aren't you? That's that's so right. So you know, if it doesn't work, you'll know about it. If you're very in the Alps very, in quick, very very quickly, yeah. Or in Patagonia. Yeah, yeah. 
And in fact, when we went out to the Alps in winter, we had, Al and I had no idea of how cold it was going to be. So our first day out, all we did was we went up onto the Aigui Rouge to spend a night. You know, so we went up to the Aigui Rouge. We had to find out, A, would our stoves work or was it too cold for that? Was, was our sleeping bags warm enough? Or was, you know, we didn't know. And so it was, a, you know, it was that level of testing that we, we were having to give it. And why do you think, um, you obviously did so many great things together, why do you think you were a good partnership? What, what different bits and bobs did you bring to, you know, what did maybe Al have or you have and why you sort of got on well in that? That's, that was a fantastic um, relationship we had because in a way we were, we were chalk and cheese. We were very different characters. Both maths brains, but different types of maths brains. Yes, uh, but, but Al, Al was a dreamer and a fantasist, but an incredibly good climber. And, um, and so he could, he could dream up all the ploys and ideas, but he was terrible at implementing anything. And so when I came along, I was not such a good climber, but more you know, pragmatic. And, you know, I would see things through. And so the two of us worked together. And I, I remember when we went in 72, when we went to um, America, I think we were flying out that afternoon or something like that. And Al had this list for the morning, which was, you know, go to, go to opticians, get glasses. You know, you know, go to this, you know, go to Brigham's, pick up this gear, go to, and it was a, list of about four things. We never got past Brigham's. We got, got into Brigham's, drinking coffee and just bullshitting. And then I, you know, I said, what about the glasses? Oh, we'll be all right with it. Yeah, I'll be right. Yeah. And it was just, you know, that was all, all over. A list of any spidery writing, which never even got looked at. But somehow it worked? It worked. It worked very well. For, for 10 years, yeah. we were, you know, we were... Whenever, wherever Al was, I was kind of thing. Yeah. You know, we were a well-known duo. Yeah. We, would, we were doing great climbs in the UK. We were doing great climbs in, in the Alps. And well, the Rouse-Carrington route, which has become a super classic. I remember doing that, you know, and that was a great kind of, it was almost, it's almost like for me, it was that technical, super technical Scottish mixed climbing transported to the Alps. Were people in the Alps, the French and that, not doing so much of that at that time? Well, we, we, you, that, was, that was the 73, 70, you know, 73, 70, no, 74, 75. Well, oh God, 74. But it was right round about there. Now, up to then, what we'd had in the Alps in winter, I think Marmier had climbed the Crossspur because he was the P, P was it the, the, the military, the GHM or something. Yeah, yeah. And you know, they had fixed ropes up it and things like that. Old old school style. Old school. Then you had De Maison, 
that had been on the, was it the Walker with yeah, um, that uh, gets old the epic yeah, yeah there. that's right yeah. and um, you know that was all the knowledge that we had of of it and so we went out thinking well we none of us know how to do that sort of stuff we've only got a rope each kind of thing so that's that's off the cards so how do we do it and so we you know we we just set off doing very. I think we did Col de la Jardinière or something the first time, um, which I think um, Valenson skied down a couple of years later. And then these Welsh guys came up. And the buggers, they did the Corner de Vie on the Dwat, first winter ascent. You think, they're not superstars, how have they managed that? And, and that kind of spurred us on. And um, we... Al and I, we, we tried all sorts. We weren't getting anywhere. Um, I think Al's plans were bigger than what we were capable of. We were trying to get to the Bremva face in winter without skis and things like that. And, um, but the, the best route we did do that year was not the Carrington Rouse. The best route, for my money, we went to do the... Was it the super cool one? Not, not the one on the Drew, the one on the Taco. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the, so the super cool one. And we tried, we spent all morning trying to free climb into it mm. and failed. And then we thought, right, don't, let's not waste any more time. And we did the Gervasuti pillar. Now, that, that is climbing beyond anything I've ever experienced before. It was phenomenal. It was just, it was super hard, super good, and it all went right. Yeah, so, so that sums up what a good day oh, is for you, yeah. Yeah, well, it, it, it was and, a couple of days. It was, it was yeah. super technical, you know, and, you know, and that, I, that is, that route, and it, we don't speak about it very much, but, you know, Everybody talks about the Carrington Rouse, but you know, should have been called the Terry, whatever it is. And um, but that for me, that was the pinnacle of it. And you went back to South America and had a more successful trip yeah. with it, with quite a big team. What was the concept there, or was there a concept, or you just kind of went? Uh, well, the concept was built on the the the, the seventy three trip when we didn't manage to do anything, and so. Um, you know, for this trip, the first thing was we carried all our gear with us, whatever, you know, so that you could do that. We also divided ourselves up into pairs so that that was the team, that was the team, you, know, the, the, you know, what you were carrying, you, you were completely self-contained. You could join up with someone else if you wanted, but that was a self-contained unit. At the Burgess Twins were a self-contained unit. Um, then the, um, Brian Hall and John Whittle were a self-contained unit. And um, that was, you know, again, you know, we, we did that, we, we set that up and then said, well, girlfriends can come along as well. We're going for a, a long time. So Sue was with you, yeah. Sue, you know, Sue, but yeah, Sue was her honeymoon, I think. We got married on the, you know, what, you know, 
Oh, they, that was when we went flew out on the 11th. We flew out on the 11th of November. We got married on the 5th. And you're saying the flights were expensive relative today. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that, and it, it, we were going for an eight-month trip into the wilderness. So, you know, it was, it was costing us, I think it was like the, the flights out were like £400, which at that time, you know, a teacher was probably earning 1,200 a year. So it'd be like paying five grand a ticket now That's type right. of thing. Yeah, yeah. Proper and committing. Absolutely. And on top of that, we weren't going to be anywhere near banks. So basically, all the money I carried in my pocket for eight months. Through all these potentially quite dangerous places. Oh yes, I, I had I'd manufactured a very secret pocket in my trousers. So as long as I didn't lose my trousers, I was all right. <laughs> and, you know, I had, you know, I, th I can't remember, $1,500 or something in my hip pocket, which nowadays I wouldn't even think about doing, but what else could you do? And where did you start and where did you finish? Presumably you were working southwards. Well, we, 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 were follow, we followed the seasons, really. So we basically, we, we went to Patagonia first. So we flew into Buenos Aires, Buenos Aires to Rio Gallegos. And you know, when we went into, you know, the, to, to, into the Fitzroy region, it's far cry from what it is now. It was just... We were just there. Basically, what, like a gaucho family living there? There was, there was a gaucho thing. house across the, the Lago Viedma, across the River Viedma. Um, there was one kind of um, uh, park ranger shed on this, you know, on the, where we, we the end of the road. Because it was only a dirt road in. There was nothing else. Dirt road, no tr no public transport. You know, we had to. We got in the back of a construction wagon from Rio Gallegos, and um, it dropped us off. There would be nobody else coming in for. Well, the postman came in once a fortnight, I think, and that was it. And you know, obviously the climbing, which we could go on for a long time. But I mean, some proper characters on your trip. Well, I mean, the, John Whittle, who was one of my mentors when I was a, a mountain guide. Yeah. Absolute legend. Yeah. Brian, obviously, Brian Orr. Yeah. The Burgess twins. Al, you must have had some fun on the journeys and off the mountain. Uh, well, we, we did. The, you know, we, we did quite often party hard and you know, we did have some, some good times. But we were all very committed to the actual climbing. You know, people sometimes look on it and think, oh, God, oh, you know, you're just a, a bunch of drunkards. You had an agenda. We, we had an agenda. And, you know, we, you know, with, with Al, we went around to the other side, to Piedra del Fraile, and stayed there. And it was, it was great because, you, you know, when we were there, we had people like um, Jean Afanisiev turned up. Famous French climber. Yeah. And, it, you know... Everybody knew each other. It was. It's kind hard of to imagine a small world. Yes, it? yes. Yeah. The whole that whole Alpine scene was so small. 
And Jim Danini would have been around there a bit? Well, he wasn't at that time. Right. He wasn't down there that time. There were, there were some Americans that we knew, you know, I, I, you know just... So lots of, lots of climbers from different countries um, involved in the alpine style ethic and, and started to take it to the bigger mountains. That's right, yes, yes. Because we'd, we'd been a bit disgusted with, was it Maestri, with these bolting and all that and the siege. And it, it seems almost sacrilege of a wonderful mountain. Because style was important to you. Oh, God, yes. Absolutely. Well, it had to be, our style had to be important because we were so crap at pegging and all that artificial stuff. And, and you didn't have the cash probably for, and the resources to have all that fixed rope and, you know. No, no. So when you went to, I'm going to jump now across to the the Himalayas and, and oh, well, Janu. You, you didn't, you, you asked me. We, we, we were supposed to, after Patagonia, we yeah. went to the Piney. Yeah, go on. From the Piney, we yeah. went back to Buenos Aires. We parted. Yeah. From there we went to Bolivia, I climbed a new route on Huayna Potosi with Al Burgess. We then went up to Peru and that was the scary time, the real scary time. So what was going on there? Well, we were up in the mountains, it was just Al, me, Sue and Al's girlfriend at the time, Gwendolyn. We were up in this high valley and doing these multi-day routes up in you know, on Rondoy, routes that we'd never, you know, nobody had recognised. And all those it. scary flutings. Yeah, and, you know, like on, you know, when we did the route on Rondoy, you know, went up, we then knew that we had to traverse this big long ridge to get off. We didn't have, carry enough gear to get back down it. We had, we'd have to down-climb the whole thing, and we could hardly climb up what would you know it was very committing oh we you know the the last last two pitches were vertical powder snow that we had to fight our way through and got to the top and then we had this seemed to go on forever this half a day traverse of flutings so that when you you put your ice axe into it you know kind of just as a walking stick you were looking you know you'd take it out and think, oh, and you could see like, you know, 3,000 foot down to the valley below. You know, and it was, it was just... And that's the sort of terrain, I guess, you know, that the, um, Joe Simpson and Yates were involved with when they had their big that's, epic. And I think that, unless you've climbed on that stuff, it's hard to get your head around it. Yeah, yeah. Pretty terrifying, really. It looks nice yeah. in pictures, doesn't it? It, it, does, it does look like, it always attracts that evening sun with the yellow light catching it and you think, ooh, isn't that nice? And then you think, have I got to climb that tomorrow? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and it's sort of that climbing that doesn't matter how good you are, it's just very insecure, I yes. would imagine, yeah. Yeah, it's hard, not tra- really, tra- no belays. Strength won't get you through it. It's just, you know, you've got to balance your way through it and, you know, just... Hard keep, to rush. <laughs> don't rush and keep breathing in. <laughs> so a lot, yeah, a lot achieved and a lot of ground yeah. done on that trip through South America. Yes, it, it was a fantastic trip. It was it, un- unbelievably. And then, you know, Brian and I, we, I went back, went up to America after that because we declared that we'd kill ourselves if we stayed on any longer. And... Um, you had that self-awareness. So, yes, it was fairly a bit marginal. Of it. A fairly marginal. Maybe we'd frightened ourselves once too many. But uh, anyway, we, 
you you I went up to America and Brian and I we got a flight out of Lima and um you headed to we got a flight to Zurich. So I thought, oh all right, that's good. Uh, oh, right, we could go to Chamonix. So immediately you know, we we landed, we up we were flat broke. Absolutely nothing. So it was right. Race you to the Barnash, Brian. So it was hitching all the way across, Brian, and um, you know, we, you know, Sue and I hitched and got, got to the Barnash that night, drinking a beer. Oh, beating Brian, fantastic, yeah. Next morning, Brian rolls in. Where do you get to, Brian? Oh, well, this nice couple gave me a lift and um, they lived in Geneva. They said, oh, why don't you come back for a shower and a bath and, uh, you know, and you'll have a nice meal and everything. So I couldn't turn them down. <laughs> so, you know, typical Brian, lucked out once again. So I'm going to say how all these characters fit. You talked about, you know, how you and Al worked. So Brian and John, was there a similar thing there in terms of how they were a good team? Because um, Brian strikes me as... A practical kind of guy. I, I, well, as you know, John is is a kind of water mitty guy. You know, he lives in some you know, some kind of cloud cuckoo land, only known to himself, and uh, a very sensitive soul, a lovely person he was, and uh, so I think you know, basically Brian bossed him around. And then the Burgesses. The Burgess twins, they, they were all, you know, they, they were almost Teutonic in their ways that they would, would approach things. Uh, I'm not sure if the blonde hair relates to that at all, but you know, they were so centered in what they wanted to do, and they wanted to climb Fitzroy. And you know, they, they, they got organized and made a snow hole. And um, you know, they used to, you know, go up and they'd carry food up and then they would stay in this snow hole. But the trouble is, as they were in the snow hole, all that was happening was they were getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And so when it came, the weather turned good, which was not very frequent, you know, they were sometimes too weak to carry, you know, to actually make use of yeah, it. Yeah, because you'd no forecast, so you yeah. just didn't know when you... You might have a weather window, but you had no idea when it was coming. Well, all, all we had and you know, was a barometer, an altimeter, which we borrowed from the RGS or the you know something, and um, you know, we hung that in the hut that we'd made, and we just if the if if the you know if the pressure went up, we we just went. We didn't know how long the window was, or if, you know, or if it was going to be one. It was you know that was his, that was all we had to go on. So it's very different yeah. from nowadays where you get precise weather forecasts or you've got a three-day window here or whatever. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe, hit like or leave comments. That would be brilliant. See you next time. <laughs>